You're listening to the Mangroves to Mountains podcast, where we talk all things outdoors, hunting, fishing, paddling, camping, adventure travel, and more. Thanks for listening. David Tetzloff, how are you, buddy? I'm great, Jim. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. We've known each other, I guess, through TBOF originally for many years now. Yes, sir. Yes, we have. A lot of history there with that club and everybody involved, and it's like a Florida legend type of thing. Everybody in and out of TBOF over the years. It's it's really enriched my life. I made so many lifelong friends there. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but when I took my wife there to the to the spring shoot, it was like six years ago. She didn't. She was just getting in the. You know, she she didn't grow up in an outdoor lifestyle, so she's kind of getting into you know shooting a bow and meeting people. And she said she was amazed. They were basically strangers to her, but by the end of the weekend, even like the end of the first day, she said, you know, these are people, there isn't one person I have met this weekend that I wouldn't just have over to dinner tomorrow night. It's just such a great group of people. It's so friendly, you know, in welcoming. Yeah, those, you know, you, you, you go in there and, you know, I went to my first TBOF shoot in 97 and I was vice president by, I think, 2000. So it's just so welcoming and and you know the way it works with clubs is you know ten percent of people do ninety percent of the work. So yeah. when you chip in and want to help pick up targets or help pull the tent down or whatever, leadership notices that and and they're going to approach you. And you know the short bio I put together for you, I'm I'm really into giving back. Um, you know if you participate in something, what have you done to make it better? Ask yourself that when you leave anything or you know you see an, an advert for pbs or compton or, or anybody that's trying to promote our lifestyle you know or your state clubs and then there's a lot of you know regional clubs here in florida too so just do something anything is better than nothing yeah for sure i think i've been one year i was members when i was doing the pig hunts with irv i was members uh, a member of like seven different organizations you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, uh, Florida, of course, and then you know, Compton, PBS, um, and a couple other ones. But yeah, it just, it just, it, and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of crossover between those groups too, of course. A lot, you can see this a lot less in faces at the gatherings and whatnot or online. So it's, it's a, it's a very nice community to be a part of. And I think it's different than any other, other, other one out there that I can think of. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, as I said, the people you meet, um, you know, there's just lifetime friends that, you know, you would take a bullet for. It's that important. You know, like we used to say with, you know, TBOF in the years I was there participating that when, you know, you pack up on Sunday night, it was like leaving family. It's almost sad because you just have a bond with these people that you work so closely with. Yeah. And then you end up hunting with some of them too you know yeah and, exactly and and as we know you have to pick that carefully too you know you pick your hunting partners as carefully as you can't pick family but it's just that tight yeah yeah i had ethan Roderick from the stick boys on last week and he said uh he had a funny comment about i think it was about a pbs gathering he said this is like a family reunion except with people that you like <laughs> yeah i like ethan Every family family reunion is full of uh your yeah families. Yeah. So, what are you up to now? You're, I know you're you're um, editor of TB TBM, right? Traditional Bowhunter Magazine. Yeah, that's um, something I just did not see coming. I was floored when TBM. What an honor! It's great. Yeah, um, 
they just had they had four boxes that they wanted checked and tj when he called me up said you know you're you're first in the hit list for checking all these boxes so he said you have to know how to write how to edit uh you have to you know know how to hunt and you have to be good with people so they had you know when robin and tj and don came up with this criteria uh you know i'm sure there are other names on the list so yeah it was an honor to even even get a phone call about it but uh i there's so much to learn because the big time publishing world is different than you know for years i helped with the tvof magazine and then i think what was really beneficial was that two and a half years editing the compton magazine and working with that crew that really helped set the stage as far as how i gather material and photos and editing and dealing with people so i think that was really instrumental i, I I wouldn't have felt uh, I would, would have felt a lot colder coming into TVOM if I didn't have those two and a half years with with Compton. Although, you know, basically you're just putting that together issue by issue. Whereas with uh, traditional Bowhunter magazine, um, you know, right now it's August and we're working on February, March. You work oh six gosh. months. You work six months out in the big boy world. Yeah. Wow, that's that's impressive. Yeah, I, I need to uh, re up that. I've had the magazine for many years. Have doubles of some of the issues, but uh, I need to need to renew my subscription because I do love, I love um, you know certainly you can read it online the online version, but just there's something about holding the magazine and and taking it in the deer woods with you sitting on the stand and reading the magazine and and uh, just I like to you know I'm an artist so you know fine artist so I like to use my hands and it just feels sure. attached to it physically if you're holding it in your hand while you're reading it. Yeah, what we found is you know you've got your hardcore traditionalists who have supported the magazine since whenever they first discovered it in my case it was 94 but you know we've been around since 89 but um we found that there are gun hunters that subscribe compound hunters that subscribe because they like the content and they like the writing because when you open any issue the diversity in our magazine i think is pretty much unparalleled the the types of things that we tackle and think that our readers would find interest in yeah for sure absolutely and and is that um, is that a full time thing for you? You you do you do photography as well, correct? Right. So um, technically, right now I have three jobs. I've got the, the TBM, and then I also do real estate and drone photography. And I guess I can say it because I'm registered with the state. So if you want to find public knowledge, it is. But I'm in training to be what they call a bear resource contractor. So I'm a subcontractor to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And I'm I went on my fifth or fifth or sixth training today. And you're helping to work with the biologist and managing bears in the state. So um, I applied when I saw the position open, got interviewed. And um, it's I'm learning a lot and I get to work with with animals again outside the zoo world. So I'm, I'm finding it interesting and challenging. I'm looking forward to um, doing a lot more with that. And I didn't know that. That's really, really super cool. There's plenty of bears in Florida. There's plenty of uh, research to be done there for sure. Yeah, well, there's, uh, you know, the population's over 4000 bears, you know, and that's up from you know a few hundred 20 25 years ago so um as a matter of fact uh two mornings ago we had a big boar walk climbed our front fence walk through our dog yard back over that fence and out to the woods behind our five acres so there's uh you know, there's a lot of bears and a, a lot of it is um anybody whether they're game commission fish and wildlife service they will tell you their job is more managing people than mm -hmm. animals because a lot of it starts with people problems. 
we went on a call trying to trap a, a, a female and some yearling cubs and they didn't go near the trap. Why? Because this apartment complex was not having their trash picked up enough. So why should the bears go in our trap when they've got a mega dumpster a hundred yards away where they have to make no effort to get their food and no risk. So again, it's, it's managing people to understand how we're going to live with these wild animals in a, in a relatively urban environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen this in the Everglades too. It's the, in terms of safety too, like you, the, the alligators you see that are, that just come right up to people like and follow up fishermen along the shores. Those are the ones that people have messed with. They've ruined them basically, you know, and, and um, after fishing out there for many years, the, the bear, I just, if I see a wild alligator, it sees me, it's gone. But if it's, if it's somebody, someone's been throwing ham sandwiches to it or whatever Doritos, then those are the ones that can cause a, a real problem. And it's the people's fault. It's not, it's not the animal's fault. Yeah, you learn. I mean, we're both very familiar with South Florida. Um, me hunting more than, you know, we did fishing on this trip to last week. got back from, I told the guys, you know, what I know about fishing, you can fit in a thimble. It's just kind of an ancillary thing for me. Like, you know, the other bear hunt we went on in, in 2005, I got a bear on the second day. So the rest of the time, I just helped the guides do chores and fished for pike. That's all that was left. So, you know, I've purposely gone fishing here and there, but, you know, usually it's involved in something else. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, from living in South Florida, I mean, it's just, um, yeah, talking about Ethan, he was mentioning somebody else he had on his podcast and said, you know, when when you're in South Florida, it's almost like the Pleistocene. It's almost, you know, pre prehistoric, the, the diversity of habitat we have down there. And, you know, you step out of your truck in the morning and, you know, you hear, you know, gators in the canals or out in the swamp. And, you know, usually, I mean, you know, the what they call the crawl when they start, you know, moving to breed and stuff in, in uh, spring, um, there's a second gator rut, which I didn't know until I asked a trapper friend of mine, there's a second gator rut in September because I got on my truck in deep lake out in the big cypress one morning and, and out in the slough, which usually the gators in the canal, but this came from out in the slough in deep lake that runs from 75 down to 41. Yeah. There's a gator bellowing out in the slough. I'm like, it's September. What is that? And and uh, Dave Regal, a friend of mine who was the uh, FWC Gator Trapper in Naples, I asked him. I go, that was. He goes, no, there is a second Gator rut in September. So, you know, the the places that our bows and arrows take us, you experience things that you would not otherwise. And you know, when you you know, we say we come home empty-handed. Yeah, there might not be meat or horns or antlers, but the things you learn and the memories are are equally important in my case. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking about that today. Um, it's funny that you should mention that, that um, the things I've seen things and you have that, that you like exactly, I'm just paraphrasing what you just said to basically what you, you just said, but uh, I was thinking about it earlier today during, I'm a teacher, you know, I do uh, parent pickup with the cars and uh, directing traffic, you know, trying to not get hit by passer passing cars but i was thinking about that like you know i've seen some strange things it's, but they're really not strange they're normal just humans aren't in the wild as often as we were once were and and they're commonplace really these things that just stand out in my memory because i don't live full-time in the woods like they do like the animals do in the wild you know i could mention them i could go on and you could too but I could bore the listeners with stories about raccoons and just cool things you see over the years i have seen a couple black bears in the glades uh, that's been really cool to see three panthers. Um, but I'm excited since I've moved to North Carolina, just seeing 
you know, some of the same animals, not all the same, but it's just going to be a different, a different um, experience. I think I'm looking forward to it this fall. And you've got the red wolves up there in the Smokies. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Um, and I mean, you probably know uh, St. Vincent Island here in the Gulf is their, is their boot camp for the red wolves. I didn't know that. Yeah. They, they breed them in zoos and then they take them to St. Vincent. They turn them loose on the island with radio collars. And then once they determine that they're, because St. Vincent has, you know, they've got raccoons, they've got, you know, feral hogs, white tails. Mm -hmm. So once they determine that these wolves are hunting and fending for themselves and they recapture them and then they take them to North Carolina. Um, and there's some controversy going on there now, whether they, North Carolina wants to keep the project going or not. I'm trying to follow up on that because I heard some negatives on that. So I'm interested in what's going on there. But the fact that if you read stuff going back 150 years, I mean, if you ran cattle in Florida in the mid 1800s, even into late 1800s, wolves were a real problem. Like they were out, right, right, out west, red wolves. They don't get as big as a gray wolf, but they were still a nuisance if you had livestock. So it was a real thing. Florida was like the, the other wild west when you read oh, back yeah. and do a lot of research. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw in the North Carolina um, hunting uh, manual the regulations book there's a thing like how to tell the difference like a picture red wolf versus coyote you know and this the characteristics different characteristics but i was like i didn't know I, that that was a, a thing until i saw that and then you mentioned it now it's that's really interesting i'd love to see one i'm, I'm pretty far east of there but i do hunt in the closer to the smokies you know for deer in the fall so who knows it'd be cool to see one and then um uh, talking about zoology is that is that what your background is in is is your degree in or, or how did you i know it was a family or like a family thing right yeah i don't have a i just have a degree in sweat blood and hard knocks because i started working when i was 14 after oh, school yeah. and full-time when i was 18 so you know some people think i'm a biologist because i've just been exposed to you know, that part of the animal world. And I have, you know, so many friends and, you know, my, my eldest son, Sasha James is a PhD biologist. So I'm just exposed to all the, you know, the, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk as far as that goes. But I was, you know, pretty much born into the animal business. And, you know, my, my, my parents were a fixture up in um, Northern Ohio at Cedar Point Amusement Park. My dad was on TV for 16 years in Cleveland TV. So, uh, you know, that from the start is, the exposure I've had to animals. So, you know, I've always, you know, wanted to read and know more and, um, you know, I'm not in the business anymore. Um, I had an acrimonious divorce from it. I just, you know, we have these epiphanies in life and it was what I grew up in and it's what I knew and what I was good at, um, you know, training animals, running parks and stuff. But, you know, to tell you the truth, I came home from Namibia in 2008 and I did not settle down after that. You know, spending that time, it was my, I think that was just my third trip to Africa. I've only been five times. My brother's been, I don't know, 15, I think by now. But wow. um, I just came back and I just go, I can't do this anymore. But I stayed in the business another 10 years until I figure out something else to do. Because, um, you know, just when you're experiencing animals in their native environment, nothing comes close. You know, you can't do in captivity what the wild does for animals. So I just made up my mind to just get away from it because I, I didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, before we started recording, your dad is from Kalamazoo. Yeah, my dad was born in Kalamazoo, and um, my father was too. That's why okay. I mentioned. Oh wow! Yeah, he went to Kalamazoo High, and I um, we used to spend summers in Kalamazoo as kids because uh, our grandparents were there, and mm -hmm. uh, would go between Ann Arbor and, and Kalamazoo 
we were living in Grand Rapids at the time, but even when we moved to Buffalo, we'd still go back summers. And I grew up fishing those lakes and in Kalamazoo and anywhere there was water, I was fishing. Yep. Yeah, a few years ago, um, my oldest son was doing um, his PhD work at a, a military base there. He's studying box turtles there at Custer. And so we went to Kalamazoo and I found the house where my dad lived. And uh, uh, I went up sheepishly, knocked on the door and said, can we photobomb your house? Because I want my son's to have a picture in front of my dad's house. And the lady was very nice, very accommodating. But at least the kids saw, you know, where, where my dad grew up. That's cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that in my grandparents' house on Rose Rose Street. So um, go back. Can we go back to the big cats? <laughs> or like the, uh, was it all animals? Different animals. Um, mainly the big cats. You know, I've dabbled in other types of things, but um, working with big cats was probably the most interesting thing I did. And then towards the end of my captive animal career, I learned to work with venomous snakes, and that I found was actually one of if you can use intense and relaxing in the same sentence, working hot snakes, what we call venomous snakes, and we didn't, um, you know, we didn't take out uh, venom glands doing that stuff. We worked with fully loaded stuff, uh, you know, exotics, natives. But there is, it almost kind of mirrored working with the big cats because there has to be such an intense focus that there can be nothing else in your world, you know, nothing else, um, you know, not that you're late for something or, you know, there's some other drama in your life. You've got to just learn how to put that behind you because you, you'll get hurt if you're distracted working with cats, working with a hot snake. So, um, you know, when you're learning to, uh, you know, work with, everything from you know our native diamondbacks to puff adders gaboon vipers you know cobras and mambas and um it's just there's such a technique involved there and snakes are you know for a lot of people it's just something to chop their head off in the backyard but when you really work around snakes they're complex animals they really are and they get used mm -hmm. to certain things but um i can't say they re return anything you know their return is your consistency and not getting bit you know that's what you're hoping <laughs> For. but working with the big cats is the Russian that was not what I could teach them to do for shows but my relationship literally you know my cats you know you see some of these old-time circus acts and they're you know the cats are hanging off their pedestal just wanting to get a hold of the trainer you know but for me I could I could pet or hug every cat that I ever trained and that I always focused on the relationship because I figured if I've got a good relationship they're planning on being my friend not plotting my demise because, you know, you figure if your show takes up 20 minutes a day, you know, they've got 23 hours and 40 minutes to think how to get you if they want to. Mm -hmm. So your job is to make them think good things, not bad things about you. And you're, you're not going to get good things if you're abusive to your animals or don't attend to their needs. So, you know, for me, it was that just, you know, I was... I got so many scrapbooks of those days, you know, articles, you know, whether, you know, here in Florida or in the Midwest and... Um, you know, it was really humbling that people are attracted to the way that I did things. And I think it was the summer 91, I actually had the center spread in People Magazine when it was still a magazine for art. Now, you know, unfortunately, it's a rag now. You can't tell right. the difference between people and acquired back then and then, you know, up until whenever. People had serious writers and they wrote well. And um, yeah, I was in the People Magazine of Five Leopards laying in my lap. Wow. Um, I think I was only the third animal trainer after Gunther Gable Williams, my friend Wade Burke, to be in people when it was when it was something good. So that was kind of neat at the time. And you you grew up more or less around big cats, right? Because your your father was doing it. Yeah, my dad 
you know, his, his affinity was cats, but he could work with anything. And my, my dad was probably more of a reptile guy than anything else. Oh, really? Okay. More about snakes and handling crocodilians than, than anything else. But, you know, I, I took the big cat thing to, to the next level because my, my heroes, my peers were in, you know, working in theme parks or, you know, still have a lot of friends in the circus and stuff. So that's, I, I live that stuff. I mean, no days off, just six and a half, seven days a week. Every, I was just so ate up with that stuff. You know, my life just revolved around the cats and work and, and nothing else. And, you know, in retrospect, I put too much into it, but I got a lot out of it. You know, yeah. it wasn't until many years later that I learned that you can take a vacation or have days off. <laughs> yes. It's like, um, and if, if there's any emphasis or any importance on like being on your toes and being prepared for work every day, that would be it, you know, working with big cats and with snakes, like you said, there's no, uh, um, time that can, you can fully relax around them. At least I wouldn't be able to no way, especially the, the big cats, but did you ever, in um, was there ever a point working with big cats that you felt like you were, um, I mean, you're all, always technically in danger, but did you ever like feel a vibe from a big cat that like maybe it did want to hurt you and change its mind? Or did you ever get injured doing that? Or Yeah, I've got this nice little scar across my nose. It was a tiger tooth and oh my gosh. eight holes in my right arm from a leopard and scars here and there. That, you know? that would be a big yes. <laughs> you can play connect the dots if you want to but you know when you're young you're bulletproof and you get stitched up and you come back for more i mean that's just the way it is when you know if literally if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger so you know there's such a when you talk about the you know big cat trainers here in america it's just a small tight group i mean we all eventually even though i was in the circus you know i eventually met all these people and, and hung out with them and stuff and and you're in such a tight click that you know there's only a dozen or more people in the entire country that can speak that same language you can you know only a few people understood what it's like to be in the arena with you know things that can that can eat you on a on a given day so you know what i used to say jim is you know people ask how dangerous they were it's like you know your best cat will kill you on its worst day i mean that's what you never can forget because no matter how well you think you know them or you never trust them because it's a wild animal and they're going to do what they want to do and you have to understand the species and their habits but you know, um, I, I think that what has taught me patience as a hunter, I learned from working with animals because nothing happens overnight. Nothing. You know, for some of us, you know, it took me it took me four years to kill a deer. And I know some people have done it their first hunt and some people have taken 10 years. You know, we're all different, different opportunities and circumstances. But I, I just think the patience of learning to shoot and learning how to hunt and all the skills involved just to get to that stage. And I think there's this in this instant gratification everything's on a phone we want now that you know and that's something that you know a lot of folks are trying to really push is you know especially you know our, our friend ethan that that matter of it, it shouldn't come easy it should right. be hard it should be hard you know so that's why um kind of jumping the gun but it was my idea we're having a a new column um called uh, traditional bow hunting 101 and because we get folks who not everybody gets all the information from social media, their internet, you know, some people, as you said, they want something substantial to hold in front of them. So we're starting this new column and the things that you will encounter, the things, the basics that you need to know to get, get you in the woods and get you in this lifestyle. So um, the first entry I, I wrote myself is going to be in December, January, and that's starting with hunter education. 
Don't forget that because a lot of people, I didn't grow up in this. Me so, either. Yeah. So a lot of folks, you know, go get your hunter education and then some states require bow hunter education. So you've got to do your, do your research, but you know, I, you can do a lot of this online, but um, when I was a guest instructor in Naples, um, when I went out there, it, it gave the full-time instructors a break. They could sit back and, you know, have a sweet tea or a cup of coffee. And I would take over for, you know, a couple topics and stuff. But I think, you know, if your listeners, anybody who's thinking of taking up a lifestyle or should take hunter ed, um, if the in-class opportunity is available, take it because it's, you get these interactions you cannot get online. I mean, the Q and A of the actual classroom setting is so advantageous. And even for guys that, you know, were in there to, you know, get hunter ed because they were hunting a state where it was required, you know, they're usually longtime hunters and they can contribute stuff to the, to the newbies in there too. So I just, I just think there's advantage to that face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. When I, I got um, my brother in hunting, um, several girlfriends in hunting back in the day. And I would always take the class again with them. So I took it like four or five times, maybe four times. And um, it's just, you pick something up in every class and it's not like, you know, I know everything, even though I've been hunting for a long time, but sure. absolutely you just, you know, you get these interactions with people that have maybe not more experience, but maybe the same, maybe more, but also just different experiences. And it's, it just uh, absolutely, if you can do it in person, that's for sure the way to do it. I think a lot of times now it's like partially online, partially in person. Maybe it's, if it's uh, if they require to shoot, of course you have to be somewhere for that, but it'd be nice to do the whole thing in person. I think So my son needs to do it. He's at the age now. He just, he turned 18 in March. So now he has to take the course. So it's, I'm, I'm going to take it with him, you know, here in North Carolina. And I'm sure I'll pick something up there too myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. You always will. I agree. And you were, you were a late onset hunter, so to say. Right. <laughs> I, um, you know, like, I don't know, most of us kids in the, in the seventies had some, you know, those old fiberglass Shakespeare, you oh, know, yeah. green bows. I mean, who didn't own one of those, you right. know, and, you know, we had stack bales and stuff in the backyard. And then, um, you know, I mean, who interested in anything hadn't heard of Fred Bear, you know, um, you know, an American sportsman or, you know, you walk into any, you know, sporting goods department store, there's, there's bare bows and all the accessories hanging on the shelf. So um, me and my buddy, Paul, we went to a big department store up there in Sandusky where Cedar Point was. And, you know, we had our green bows at home, but we're sitting there just drooling over these Kodiaks and Grizzlies. And that's, you know, they had, they still have that uh, Black Panther bow too. So, you know, we just, we just went home and did more chores and mowed more lawns till we could afford that stuff. And then, um, you know, we had, uh, I guess, early, 2d shooters we filled uh shopping all the old paper shopping bags that you don't see anymore filling a newspaper and we drew animals on them and then there was a kind of this vacant it was an island um attached to our neighborhood just a short little driveway across where everybody took their grass clippings and stuff and then we would stick these bags at the edge of the woods all the way around and then kind of walk around and shoot them so that we were like early 2d people i guess yeah. Then, yeah. Then I started working, you know, after school and summers when I was 14 and I was a hardcore skateboarder. I lived on a skateboard through high school. I mean, if I wasn't working, you couldn't pry me off a skateboard. This was wow. what I really was into. Um, and I didn't do anything. And then after, you know, I graduated and it was just, you know, hundred miles an hour at, at, at the training and zoo stuff. And then I was in my mid thirties and, um, 
my mom just said, you work too hard. You need a hobby. So <laughs> at the same, about the same time she said that my buddy, Paul, he moved, uh, he's a veterinarian. He moved back from Alaska to Sylvania by Toledo, Ohio. And um, the practice he bought, um, the owner was a self-boyer. So when he bought the practice, he gave Paul one of his bows. And also about the same time, um, I'd gone to a damn Yankees concert and Ted Nugent was giving away, his, it was giving away his, uh, his catalogs, um, at the exit of the arena. So those two things kind of like, oh yeah, I used to shoot a bow. I used to love it. So that just kind of, that's where it all kind of began in my mid thirties and went from there. Really? And then, um, I wrote about this in my first, uh, op bed in the magazine that, uh, sometime in 94, one of my employees walked into work and, um, he had gone to the bookstore supermarket and saw traditional bow hunter and he, he walked into work and goes, I think you'd like this. And then I, I picked up TBM and thought, wow, this is it. This has everything I want to know, everything I'm interested in. And I subscribed immediately. And then I ordered every back issue from the last five years. So, you know, I'm just, I'm that much of a geeky fanboy. I had to have it all. And, um, you know, the first time I met TJ in person was my, I believe it was my last year as president of uh, Traditional Bow Hunters of Florida, and TJ was our guest speaker. And, you know, um, by then I had two copies of the original first issue. So I had TJ autograph one. So I'm just, a, I'm a complete idiot about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm eating up with it too. When I have, I don't know if it was before we started recording or, or since, but I have a lot of, uh, uh, doubles of issues i don't have every issue but uh, i have friends like i had a friend in florida was just going to throw them away he had like a box of them he was just going to throw them away like, no way no way absolutely not I've no. Got like gold. i would throw gold away first <laughs> yeah just like you don't do that who does that like yeah. and then when we moved here you know we drove up in a, in a u-haul it's like i don't know if i want to pack these but i'm certainly not getting rid of them so i have half of them here in our apartment and half in storage in miami so like a storage unit there but uh, they'll be coming up soon. <laughs> Next time I'm down there, I'll, yeah, that's, they're never going away. And um, yeah, that's just, I couldn't, it, I mean, it, a lot of magazines are like this, but for me, it was, I couldn't wait till the next issue showed up. I just could not wait. Read it cover to cover, and, uh, took it in the woods with me and, and uh, just, it sets a very high bar for all ma outdoor magazines, I think. Yeah, you mentioned getting in the mail. That is the only downside right now is I know what it's all going to be because, you know, I'm, I'm neck deep in it. So there's no more yeah, surprise, surprise in the mailbox, you know, but otherwise it's, that's brilliant. But that's, that's the only tiny negative is I know what's going on. Yeah, because you would. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then uh, you just got back from Alaska. You want to talk about that trip? Was it, I assume it was specifically a hunting trip, correct? I uh, was with uh, Rourke Brown, Homer Ocean Charters. Okay. Out of Homer. So yeah. I honestly, I fell into this because uh, a year ago at, at Compton, um, a couple other folks, uh, Dave and Tracy Bolowski, uh, St. Joe River Bows, they, um, I guess sometime during the shoot, they had talked to the other guys. So, you know, we already had another bear hunt. We don't really need to go on two bear hunts. So as soon as that got, it's like word starts spreading around like wildfire around the rendezvous. And once people, they were just, um, going after the other four guys, pick me, pick me. And, um, Jerry Goins and Dennis Harper came up and said, kind of whispered, you know, we're going on this thing and you're, we would like you to go. So that was an honor to be chosen by the you know, core group that were still involved. So 
I didn't even think about the scheduling, the money, anything. I was like, I'll figure all that out later. I just, I, I said, yes, throw my name in the hat. So uh, a couple of days later, um, they were all able to sit down, uh, the other four folks and, and uh, decide who they wanted to go, you know, because they had certain criteria. You spend a week on a boat, folks, you can't get away from each other. Somebody doesn't get along. So yeah. uh, they uh, they asked me and Johnny Karsh from Three Rivers. So uh, oh, nice. it was uh, uh, Dennis Harper and Jerry Goins and uh jameson olsen and um you just I, I actually just today i was editing some real estate photos i was listening to your podcast with sean blakely sean was on it but you might know he's buying a house so he's like i i can't not buy a house i'm gonna have to you know to back out so a uh, friend of uh dennis's caleb caleb went with us so you know we had a, a really good core group and you know it's the most time that i've you know I've known Dennis just through Compton and, you know, Jerry, I just, you know, met a couple of Comptons, but um, it was just great spending time with these guys. And so it was, we, uh, we all met in Homer and um, Rourke is really accommodating. Um, you know, he just, when you're a boat captain, you have to know everything. <laughs> you have you, you, your chief cook, bottle washer, mechanic. I mean, it's just what to be, you know, in his position, it just and, and his, his son Ashton is 17 and just I wish every 17 year old could see how this kid works I mean this kid works like a dog 24 7 you know he's helping you fish he's filleting stuff he's zodiacing to the shore you know he's helping Rourke with stuff I mean he just sets one hell of an example for teenagers that you know there's there's a whole lot more to life than video games and stuff there's out learning a trade you know and it's just uh was, it was really amazing to watch that work so this was combo of of black bear hunting and and fishing and um there's really an opportunity to do as much or little as you want uh, because okay. there were times where uh, right. Rourke would say hey you know we can drop you off at this bay and you can hunt or we're going to go offshore to one of my you know hole, holes and and fish so um there were times where there was all six of us went ashore with our bows and there's times that two of us went but i did not pass up an opportunity to go ashore with my bow, not once, you know, I missed out on some fishing, um, got to do a little bit of it, because um, uh, there was one afternoon where we were just for hours, just hammering the, hammering the kings and uh, silver salmon. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. When you get a minute, go to YouTube and check out Mangroves to Mountains Outdoors. It's a channel I started in 2008. There's bow hunting, uh, black powder hunting, fly fishing, fly fishing tutorials, hiking, paddling, you name it. So check it out when you get a minute. Mangroves to Mountains Outdoors. Thanks. So basically with uh, the fishing bear hunting, we had a, you could have a choice a lot of times where um, you could be dropped off to, you know, work up the streams uh, for bears or hunt the beach, or you could go to one of Rourke's great fishing spots. But, um, probably my best fishing day uh, I think was a second to last day and we just he knows where to go he's been doing this 31 years and there was just one afternoon where it was just king after silver after king and um and then we got it and it was almost like they the fish punched a clock we were just hammering the salmon they quit and the rockfish started nailing it and then it went back to salmon and then uh, that was all with weighted lines going down about 30, 40 feet uh, where they're hitting it um, because they, they use the flasher and then the lure to get them to go towards it. 
And then we also um, did some jigging and caught a lot of, lot of rockfish, um, caught some lingcod that you can't boat. You cannot boat them unless they're 36 inches. So we brought up some cod that we just, you couldn't boat them, couldn't keep them, but you know, it's all still, it's all still fun. Oh yeah. But you know, as soon as you go into a bay for the evening or an afternoon and um, you know, Rourke said, whoever wants to go ashore, get your gear and you're just bailing down to your berth and getting all your stuff. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that. How do you get to the shore? Is it like a little, a smaller boat that they launch you? Yeah. Ashton, Ashton, his son, uh, Zodiac's you to the shore. Oh, Zodiac. Okay. All right. So in this case, um, we had a great week. Uh, we had some close encounters. Uh, you know, no, nobody brought a bear home. I, I passed up, uh, it was probably two, you know, two and a half year old bear i'm guessing um i just i had him at full draw he was actually standing on his hind legs um in a blueberry patch um i think either i i was i was down on a stream and um jerry goins is actually sitting um behind a log on the beach and the bear i saw him between me and jerry stand up and look or smell in that direction and then he dropped down and then he worked his way up the slope and then i saw him again um you know moving through because there's a lot of blueberry and salmon berries uh, on the sides of the stream and and he worked his way through the brush i lost sight of him but i'm like i don't think he came out of there i think he's still milling around in there and a few minutes later he popped up probably 18 yards away again on his hind legs looking down towards the beach and he he almost looked like uh the, the you know the side kill zone on one of those mckenzie 3d targets that, that was my view you know right there the elbow pocket i was at full draw and i did it i knew i was going to shoot him but i just want to do that you know that nerve calming where you're in control you're at full draw and 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 you can let down and that's what i did and he had a bit of a rubbed up hide too but i just you know, he was just too small for, for what I was looking for out there. And there's not, you know, I would, if he was, you know, over 200, I would have, you know, I, I just knew he was, you know, probably 150 pound bear, you know, and in that area, they've, they've got some 300 pounders, you know, I've seen the pictures, but uh, you know, for, for my purposes, I just, I wanted something a little more mature. And then again, you're making these decisions that you've gone a long way. You've spent a lot of money and it's, and it's up to you how you want the, the deal to go down, what, what you're comfortable with going home with. You know? Yeah. I mean, just that scene, you'll, you'll remember that forever. He didn't have to, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like it, it didn't happen. It happened. It's etched in your memory forever. And uh, that had to be such a thrill. Just incredible. That's one of my dream hunts for sure. Yeah. When you're sitting on those streams, you know, because I've, I've done the, you know, the Canadian tree stand hunt, you know, just off to my right here, I've got a full body mount of, of you know, 350 pound bear and they aged him at 15 years, fully mature animal, just, just gorgeous animal. And, um, you know, that's the difference between these types of hunts is, you know, the Canadian tree stand hunts, um, you know, it's a week long hunt, but I got him on the second night and I, he was only the fourth bear I saw, but, you know, if you, you hear a lot about ground shrinkage with bears, but you've, you've got to, you know, study the animals, you know, and, and I read an article years ago that said, you know, even if you've got a local zoo that has bears, go, go to the zoo and study the bears. So you're, you know, you see what one looks like in real life and you can get a size determination comparison. So that's good. Um, advice. Yeah. Yeah. In Saskatchewan, the, you know, the first night, and the reason I like that hunt we did up there was, was no ATVs, no roads. We were um you know went to a um 
Cree Indian town and then 13 miles um, by skiff up to the camp. And then every stand you went by boat. So you just felt really remote. And I enjoyed that, that there was no motor vehicles anywhere. It was just all, all boats. So um, in Saskatchewan, the first night I had a, it was a, a good size sow, but she was crippled. She had a, a bum front foot. I'm like, you know, you've got a hard life, but you're surviving. I'm, I'm not going to drop the string. And then then a, then a two-year-old came in and I was in a really low stand and I was probably only nine feet off the ground. So lower than a basketball rim. And, uh, you know, he wanted to prove that he was some kind of little bully. So he, he walked past me and then a U-turn and huffed and bounced at my stand and, uh, you know, let, let him go. Cause I, I knew that, well, that's not where I came there for. And then, the the second night, if it was the last day, I would have done something because he was, he was probably a 225, 250 pound bear. And, um, you know, he walked to the barrel, messed around, and then he came right to the base of my tree, stood up and looked at me through the grill of the lock-on stand. And, you know, people try to downplay black bears, but, um, actually, uh, coming up February, March, um, our friend Don Thomas has a piece on dangerous hunting, dangerous game. And you look at the stats in Alaska and there's about as many black bear incidents as, as there are brown bears. So mm -hmm. you underscore that they're a big predator, you know, yeah. same teeth and claws. So, you know, when one stands up on your tree and looks at you, they can climb, you know, 10 feet a second, yeah. 10 feet a second. So, you know, when he stood up and looked, you know, I kind of, I had my hand on the bear spray that they give you. And, uh, but he was satisfied and walked away. And then, um, nine 15, my bear rolled in and you just, you just, when you've studied these animals, you just know when he just came rolling in with that big block head and, you know, big shoulders, big belly, you know, it's a shooter. You, you've got, if you've done your research, you've got to know it's a shooter. I mean, they're just, these big mature animals are just so impressive. They can't be anything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas then, the opposite yeah. in, in Sorry. Uh, no problem, the Alaskan trip is that, you are, you know, we all took like a, some kind of seat cushion and basically found a spot on the bank of the stream. So you are, you know, you're trying not to move, but you know, you've got a salmon stream in front of you and you've got blueberry and salmon berries behind you. So you're literally, <laughs> something could come at any direction, any direction. Anytime, depending, depending on the wind. So you really have to, you know, there's no naps. <laughs> there's no, there's no dozing off because some can come behind you or you don't want to nod off and, and, and blow an opportunity. So, you know, I, I, when I travel, I've always got the, you know, I'm big in the mountain ops company and they've got their sample ones. So I, you know, I take the sample packs and mix them with a bottle of water. So, you know, I'm, I'm wired for the day with those mm -hmm. things because I, I just don't, I don't want to miss anything. So that's, that's my caffeine rush. But yeah. There's um, you know, you just, you work in these streams and, uh, the salmon were running late this year. And I think that was the issue that the bears had. We saw, I had salmon in front of me. But we didn't see any big school swimming in until the last night. Uh, so these are things you can't control. Right. You still have a hell of a great time, but you know, nature controls herself, you know, not us. So, um, but the fact that you're just sitting there working these streams and watching for stuff and, you know, like Dennis, you know, the last night, we we hunted a high tide he had a seal 40 yards away <laughs> you know harbor seal swam in looking for fish so again and, and um 
Yeah. And then Jameson Olsen got 10 seconds video of a white wolf on the beach. I mean, that was his thing for the week. You know, it came down, sniffed some rocks and, you know, I want to see a wild wolf. I really do. But, you know, he got 10 seconds of a, a pure white wolf. So and you've got to be there to experience these things. It doesn't happen on the couch or watching TV or doing anything else. You've or got sleeping to on the boat or sleeping on the exactly exactly yeah, be out there. Yeah, the, the things you know i, I wrote a, a piece a few years ago on tbm called empty cooler hunts which is pretty much the story of my life most times but it's these things i wrote it because there's an intended purpose there is you've got to be there to experience these things and there's a lot of things i would not have ever seen or learned if i wasn't there to begin with absolutely yeah any um what are your plans for this fall for hunting wise uh, few weeks, uh, yeah, we pulled, a few weeks we pulled me and my buddy uh chris we pulled uh tags uh non-resident tags for nebraska an area we went hunt i've never hunted nebraska so i'm super excited uh to go up there uh he went up there last year and so it's kind of been pre-scouted a couple of management areas so i'm looking forward to that and then um october i'm supposed to go to um illinois mm-hmm. and florida usually i can pull I didn't pull any permits down here this year. Wow. That, that's only happened twice in 20 some years where I didn't pull anything. So, you know, when people say there's fewer hunters, I'm really suspect. I'm sorry. I am because I, I if am. There fewer hunters, why are permits still, you think they'd be, you know, growing on trees. So <laughs> the fact that I applied for, you know, four or five different hunts or management areas and didn't get anything, it's competitive. Don't tell me it's not. Don't it tell is. me. I don't hear it. I really don't. Yeah. And, um, yeah, this is the first year in many years I didn't apply just because I knew I wouldn't be around to do the hunt. I may go down and hunt with Ryan Gill at some point because, you know, a lot of them you could bring a guest and then he's mm, right, right. So I may do that, but uh, just just depends. But uh, I've had I love Florida hunting, but it's it's challenging it's depending on where you are in Florida. But um, pig hunting can be outstanding, but the deer hunting is kind of localized, you know, it can be great where you're at. But a lot of the state, at least in my experience, is pretty tough hunting. How about yeah, you? With a trad, yeah. Um, with a trad bow, you know, because I've I've hunted with a little bit of everything. I mean, right now I'm I'm 100 trad because I think to, to, for me to do anything else would be you know disingenuous to you know what I'm doing for for the magazine now. But you know I've I've got a few deer with you know firearms in South Florida that you know were you know even if I had it was hunting with a trad bow it wouldn't it wouldn't happen. You know you you've mm-hmm. been there. You know you hunt those you know palmetto flats and. You try to pattern a deer in South Florida. Good luck. They just, they just, they just go everywhere, you know, anywhere they want to. There's, there's no funnels. There's none of this stuff that you hear about in the Midwest or, you know, talking about, you know, these folks that hunt mountains and where the deer are going to be on the mountain at a certain time and so forth. You know, I know mountain whitetail hunts is a bitch too, I've heard, but there's just like, there's no patterning these things down there. And if you, you know, you get a buck, um, you know, with anything, you know, you've, you've pulled off almost the impossible. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really figure out deep Lake until a couple of years before I moved out of the area, you know, it just took so long to, to figure out what those deer, deer are doing and when, and, you know, I, I killed three, but, you know, it was when I was, um, I call it my pity party compound days, but, um, you know, two of those shots, I wouldn't have made with a trad bow, mm-hmm. you know, they just, you know, those prairies, you know, oh yeah, you can you see through get out there and you've got a choice, you know, that, you know, where, which, which cypress dome are you going to sit on or, you know, find an island with a, a sable palm that you can put a climber on. You know, for me, my, my best way was, 
you know, I, I broke the ladder stand down and drug it out there on a game cart, but you know, you're walking out there and, you know, you've got your hip boots on. And, you know, for me, that was the only way I'd get away from people because Same. the beginning of, you know, big Cypress opens, you know, typically on labor day, which is after the rut, you know, the, mm -hmm. the management areas down there now open at the end of July, which, you know, I tell my friends from out of state, our deer start in Southwest start rutting in July. They're like what? I'm like, it's, it's 105 degrees of the heat index, but they're doing what they're doing. Jason you know? does, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, you know, by September, they're still, they're still moving out there. And, uh, so I would just drag a ladder stand out and, and find a Cypress dome and, um, the spot I found like a year before I left town, or I think it was that year. Uh, yeah, I killed two from, from the same stand just cause I finally figured out what those, what those bucks were doing. It's just, you know, they, they say if you can kill a deer in Florida, you can kill a deer anywhere, which I still have to prove that in Ohio with my curse up there. But, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's wild. And, and, cool on you if you've seen you know three panthers i've seen two mm -hmm. um it's you know the whole repatriation of the panthers is controversial um you know it's time and place for that but you know i just i know a lot about the program because i know a lot of biologists and I'm stuff sure. yeah I still love or hate the reintroduction program it's still cool to see one it is wow. yep. amazing yeah the, mm -hmm. the first time i saw one i had um i was walking into the spot to fish and this animal just came out onto the trail and it was, it looked almost black, but then I realized it was two-toned and it was a panther. I saw the tail and then it wasn't far away. It was like maybe a hundred yards. And mm -hmm. I was just in such awe of this thing. It was two-toned because it had been down in the water. So it's, it's fur on its legs and its belly were darker than the rest of it, you know, the tawny mm -hmm. color. But um, I had a camera right on my hip and it took me like, I was just stunned. Like, what am I looking? Oh my God, I can't see a panther. Oh wait, I have a camera somewhere. Where? Like, I just went into like freak out mode. And by the time I got the camera out to take a picture, it already crossed the trail and going into the woods. But I did just get some pictures of its of its uh, its tracks on the, on the trail. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, it was super cool. And I just see the other ones were just kind of in passing, but that was the best view of the of one. And um, it just disappeared. Or just, you know how they are. They're just as you know they're. They move so silently and I, I walked up to the spot where like he had to go into the water why didn't i hear him go into the water because it was water on either side of this trail i didn't hear him going into the water but where is he like how did that what did he, he swam across and quietly like how does it, it but it was just like it just disappeared like a ghost like they are you know out there but it was just super cool I'll never forget it yeah, the closest I saw one when I was driving down to hunt Deep Lake, and um, he was walking on the side of State Route 29 um, between 75 and 41, and mm -hmm. he actually walked around the corner of those panther fences that you see down there oh, that yeah. they put up where they're you know where the most mortality is. They they put up the fences, but he had walked around the very edge of it on the highway side. I'm like, man, don't walk on the road today. And then the um, the second one I saw much closer. There's a you have to be a Collier County resident. Um, it's called Pepper Ranch and it's uh, north of Immokalee and they open it up for public hunting and you have to go through a little quota and pull it and stuff. And oh. um, we were, uh, my youngest son Zane and I were, were driving out. We had just gone out for, let him sit in a double ladder stand with him in an afternoon hunt. We left before dark and um, we came around the corner and the check station there is an old cracker cabin. So we were on our way to the cabin to check out and uh i stopped for a moment because there was a, a doe feeding in a dried out flag pond and so we watched the doe for a few seconds and then i pulled up the truck and underneath a you know the brazilian pepper that we get down there invasive tree mm -hmm. 
underneath a, a pepper hedge is an adult male panther watching its doe. <laughs> so, you know, by the time my brain registered cat, I slammed on the brakes. I threw in reverse as that Zane, there's a cat, look out my window. And but by the time I backed up, then the cat spooked because of me, which then then the deer saw the cat and everybody was gone. But um, it was just because he was less than 20 yards away. Just I could see him as plain as day, walk, just w waiting his time on that deer. And I, I messed up his hunt. So I kind of felt bad. <laughs> I'm guessing he had uh, other opportunities. But yeah, that's that's super cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Were you able to keep this is off topic or back to the previous topic? Were you able to keep some salmon to bring home? Yeah, uh, brought home 44 pounds of salmon, rockfish, and a couple of the other guys caught a halibut. Um, so I have a couple halibut fillets, but between the two species of salmon and the rockfish, we'll be. And, and then what, and let me just write this down. What's your, what's your address again? Oh, <laughs> what, what night? <laughs> yeah, um, my wife Kelly made, uh, yeah, cooked, cooked our first first salmon uh actually we had it we had it last night but what i really want to do is um johnny karch and i because we wanted to hunt um i think it was the second last night works like you guys can hunt but you're gonna miss dinner so we packed sandwiches and and went in but uh he had work made rockfish tacos so i'm gonna replicate that here because i didn't get my rockfish tacos on the boat but i'm gonna i'm gonna get in <laughs> here but um once you get off the boat in homer um they actually will meet you at the dock take your fish and then by the next morning um i i borrowed a friend's car so i drove because i wanted to see the scenery i drove from anchorage to homer and back it's about a four or five hour drive but it's just gorgeous every inch of the way i just wanted to see some some of that territory great choice but yeah they'll they'll pick up they'll pick up your fish um and then they take it to the processor and they turn it all into one pound packages they flash freeze it um I picked it up the morning that I was going to drive back to Anchorage and I drove up and I put it in my friend's um, chest cooler for the night, picked it up um, actually two days later when I flew out. And, you know, by the time I, you know, got to the airport, checked everything and picked it up here in Orlando, uh, still frozen like a rock. So that flash freezing. And the, so they pack it in styrofoam and then a cardboard box and it, you know, for that whole flight from Seattle, Orlando, it was perfect. So I definitely would do it that way again. Amazing. Is, is that part of the hunt then? Is that, do they arrange that for you? Like Homer Ocean Charters? Yeah. Uh, Rourke has all the contacts that you need. So a lot of this stuff, he just, he makes so easy because he's just been doing it for so long. So wow, that's uh, incredible. Homer, Homer's a neat little town. They've got a, they've got what they call, um, it's, the spit is what they call it. And that's where the kind of the touristy areas and restaurants and bars are. It's almost like a far North Key West. I mean, Duval mm -hmm. Street. I mean, it's just a really neat place to walk up and down and, and have a drink and great places to eat. Fabulous. You, you can't get a bad meal there. I, I had a, yeah. I had a seat, you know, I'm, I'm not into big, heavy foods, but I had a, a, a seafood mac and cheese. I had it at the beginning of the hunt and we went there afterwards and it was so good. I had it again. Um, it was just fabulous. Very cool. Okay, but let's uh let's talk Africa. <laughs> Great. I love, you know, I've I've only been Alaska twice, you know, I've been both with Homer Ocean. Um did get the Kodiak and uh the bear. I'd go back and do either one in heartbeat, but Africa is my favorite place in the world. It's there is nothing, there's not it's overwhelming. It's literally <laughs> overwhelming in the in a good way. 
Um, you know, we were talking about being overwhelmed that, you know, people think about it and it's the planning is just too intimidating. And, you know, there's, there's hunts here in North America that are more expensive than Africa. So there's just so many illusions that people have that, you know, I wrote a, a piece in the Compton um, magazine a couple of years ago, just breaking down the African experience. And, you know, here's why people don't do it and why that's wrong. Um, you know, if you don't like air travel, get over it. I don't like it either. I don't like it. You know, I'm six, four. I don't like being folded up in any kind of seat for, <laughs> so, you know, you can do that two ways. Um, you can fly into Europe, you know, you can do the UK, you can fly into Germany, um, uh, the Netherlands, anywhere to break up the trips. You can have, you know, two kind of medium, in my world, medium length flights, you know, seven, eight hours, and then down to Africa is about the same. But, you know, you can plan it so you you could have a day to stretch your legs. So That's when cool. my, my brother, who's a non-hunter, he just went along, um, you know, paid the observer fee in Namibia. Uh, you know, we, we had a, a full day, you know, we, we, you know, we landed early in Frankfurt. Um, we chilled at the hotel for a bit, got something to eat, um, spent the afternoon at the zoo, came home, take a nap. And we got on the plane that night. And then we were in Vinhook, Namibia the next morning. Um, my eldest son, Sasha and I, when I was in the zoo world, I got to go a couple of times as the talent of the, you know, the tour, you know, when, they would use my name to, you know, promote, you know, go to, go to Africa with David and, you know, it helps. You're supposed to be attracting donors and things like that and mm -hmm. making contacts and stuff. But, um, you know, when Sasha and I went to South Africa, we flew, um, you know, we met in Atlanta and then flew straight through to Johannesburg. And that was a long flight. That's 15 hours. But again, once you step out of the plane, you forget it. <laughs> it's just yeah. the flight is gone. Um, you know, when Kelly and I did a, you know, a similar um, talent trip in 2012 and there's no terminal, you just, you're right out on the tarmac. And when we stepped out, I said, breathe. I said, what do you smell? She goes, earth. I'm like, yeah, this smells like earth and nothing else, you know? Um, so, you know, get the plane ride. A lot of people don't like vaccination. I don't want to be stuck with a needle, but again, you get, you get to do your research, depending where you go, you know, some areas you need the shot or that shot, um, do your research, get it over with, get it behind you. Um, you know, find out which, you know, with your travel clinic, your personal physician, you know, which, cause you should, um, even though it's a lot of times when we go to hunt, it's their winter. Um, I didn't even see a mosquito in Namibia, but I still took my malarone every day as a prophylactic. I mean, you just, you gotta think smart, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. And um, so you've got get the travel behind you, get your vaccinations behind you. Um, you know, by then you've you found before that you found the outfitter you want to go with. Um, with me, um, I chose um, Alan Alan Sillier's um, hunting safaris. Um, I knew of Alan and his family because of Don Thomas. Um, Don was good friends, and um, it's just the world we live in. You know, because I didn't know the Sillier's family from Adam's cat and vice versa, but. Um, his son, Wayne, who at the time, Wayne's in his 30s now, but at the time we were there, he was 22 and the youngest PH in Namibia. And Wayne picked us up in Vinhook and, and drove us six hours north of their property. But, you know, I didn't know Alan or vice versa. But when I got out of the, the truck and shook Alan's hand and I said, Don Thomas sends his best regards, just any barrier was gone. Because, uh -huh. you know, if you're a friend of Don's, you're a friend of Alan's. It's just the way it works in, in, in our small world. Yeah.
So, you know, and then you have to look at the kind of place you want to hunt. You know, I, I purposely went to Sillier's, not just because of Don's recommendations, but for the fact that it's not a high fenced operation. And you can't compare a high fence here in North America to a high fence in Africa, because there's a reason they have high fences. It's because the, those animals are literally their bread and butter from birth to death. And, mm -hmm. um, you, outfitters have had, you know, wars with poachers. And, uh, so that's why a lot of those properties, you know, but I don't want to hunt three or 4,000 acres with an eight foot fence. That's not, that might be fine for somebody who just wants to go get some representative animals, but I wanted the experience of Africa as wild as it could be. So with Sillier's, they own 60, let me repeat that, 60,000 acres. That's bigger wow. management areas here in Florida. Oh, yeah. So, um, and most of it is low fence because it's an old cattle operation that they turn into um, wild game. And the only high fence is uh, the property that borders Bushman land. And that's called the red line fence. And it was built um, over 60 years ago to keep livestock and game animals from transmitting disease back and forth. And that particular fence, we, you know, Wayne took us for a walk along it one afternoon. You can see where the Gemsbuck and the Warhogs actually dig under the fence and other oh stuff goes gosh. there too. So, but the fact that most of this was low fence, that's, that's the experience I wanted. I wanted animals who could freely come and go on their own. And that's, that's what we got. And you, you have a daily fee. So you pay, you know, every outfitter over there has their daily fees. So no matter what happens, you know, that pays for your room and board. When you go to Africa, you don't have to take a bunch of clothes Two maximum three sets of hunting clothes. Cause they do your laundry every single day. You know, you leave yesterday's stuff on the bed it is clean and pressed when you come back in for lunch yes. at night. Um, and then to me, the other huge benefit of hunting Southern Africa is there's so much hunting going on. And a lot of that meat goes to not only the locals and the campfire programs and the sharing and stuff, but also it can end up in a restaurant too. So, but in camp, you are basically eating what the guys or ladies shot before the week before you. Mm. Uh, they want to hang an agent so i think there's only two hunters in camp i was there me and another guy and i think the only time we ate one of our stuff they were getting low on gemsbuck so we ate keith's gemsbuck but otherwise you're eating the stuff that they got before you and the guys that were there after us ate stuff that we we took um so you can't bring the meat home you know that's a question i get you can't you can't bring the meat home um and then is that just want, because of um is that because disease or potential um parasites yeah. or something yeah it's all it's all risk management as a matter of fact yeah. uh the, the warthog hides have to have a separate dip um oh, really on them yeah so again it's you know just like with homer ocean rourke knows his business when you go over there they know their business so they know when you are you know coming back to town that you're going to stop off at the local taxidermist and they do what they call the dip and ship there. So they can do your, they can do your taxidermy in Africa and they can do a fine job. But I have a guy in, in, in Naples, Bucky flowers, skins and scales that I knew I was going to bring my stuff to Bucky because um, Bucky gets stuff from international hunts. When you, when you go into his trophy room or even where his, his separate shed where he's got all the skulls and stuff that are being prepared, half his stuff is exotic. That's his wow. business. So that's the thing is that, you want to make sure when you bring your things home, if you're going to get them taxidermy here, not in Africa, that you pick the right guy. They've got to have exotic experience. 
um, I was watching the, I don't watch the outdoor channel much, but I was watching one of those celebrities walk around their house and they had an eland on the wall that looked like a cartoon, you know? So I know this guy has a ton of money. I know he has a ton of money, but he gave his eland to somebody who didn't know what they were doing with it and got the most miserable looking mount that I've ever seen in my life. So you've got to, you've got to make sure that, that your person has experience with exotics. Otherwise they're going to screw it up. And then the other thing, some of the other stuff they worry about is um, snakes. But generally when you're hunting, it's our summer, but it's their winter. And snakes just aren't active. You know, there's some things that you don't want to do. Um, you know, I want to get a photograph of a termite mound one day. And Wayne said, you know, don't get too close because cobras hole up. And I'm like, okay, that's what we do. We don't get too close to the termite mound. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally when it's cold, because mornings can be in the 40s there in July. So snakes typically, you know, we saw, you know, in the 10 days we were there, we saw one baby puff adder, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that was it. But, you know, they just, when you're over there, um, you know, they're not too casual about snakes, but they don't, they don't freak out about snakes. They just don't. I mean, they talk about knocking black mambas out of a tree with a broomstick, like you and I talk about swatting a mosquito, you know, it's just, it's, those are the things that they're used to over there. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you're there again, it's the things that you learn even when you're you know, when you're not hunting you know because the last thing you want to do is look like a know-it-all american when i go over there i'm an idiot i don't know anything mm-hmm. you, know, you want to learn shut your mouth and sponge it up you know because when i've done the tourist type safaris then i will run my mouth because the guides have pretty much figured out that i i know stuff you know and a lot of times they get tired of answering the same questions so i've been on a couple tours where they're like, ask Dave, you know, Dave, <laughs> you know, because yeah. that way they can just concentrate on their driving and stuff, you know. But then again, the stuff I don't know, I'm zipping my lip and and I'm asking them because they're the ones that live there, you know. So if I have, you know, a spoonful of knowledge, you know, they've got a gallon full. Right. Can you think of um it doesn't have to be a, a kill or even a hunt, but can you think of one? If you had to pick one memory from Africa, what what would it be that really stood out to you that just comes to the top of your mind, off the top of your head, top of your mind? This this goes under the the just being there um, Mm -hmm. category. So usually Wayne um, still used to drive me out the blind and either be my guide or leave me with one of the Bushmen or Herrera. But one morning, um, Alan himself uh, drove Tim and I out and... uh, we're driving down towards the blind and Alan stops the truck and says, you want to take a walk in the woods? It's like, who the hell doesn't want to take a walk in the woods with Alan Silliers? Because <laughs> you know, he's lived in Africa his life. He was, you know, he was the game warden uh, for 13 years at, at Etosha National Park and oh he's lived this stuff, you know, he's wow. just lived this stuff. So we bail out of the truck and we walk around the front of the truck and there's a drag mark across the road. Okay. We know what this means. So one of the Bushmen is, we're pushing through the uh, raisin bush and um, we're just weaving through there. And I don't know, we're 50, 70 yards in and there's a gut pile that's been partially buried. And then 10, 15 yards past that is a yearling kudu, maybe, you know, 150 pounds. And around it are, and they had the, the cats, the leopards had just started to eat out the hindquarters. So this was fresh. I mean, smoking fresh just killed during the night and uh you know the bushmen are just i mean you hear about them but you've got to experience their brilliance because i mean within i'm telling you milliseconds jim 
he's talking, Alan's interpreting. And I mean, he looks at the ground and literally there's like not even a space between him looking and him talking that it's an adult female leopard. She has two cubs. They're about a year old just by bam. And, and then when you look at, when you, when you, when you're going through these trails and I mean, literally, I mean, there's, this just, it is, they just, a maze of tracks. I mean, there's just so many animals walking so many places and it's just for them just to pick this stuff out is, is incredible. So, you know, that, that, that was probably the neatest thing is seeing a, a, a leopard kill. So of course, since it's so fresh, my question is, okay, where are they now? And Alan said, we could have literally just run them off us moving through here because they that's, probably didn't that's know how far. fresh it was. Yeah. yeah. They could even be here watching us right now. And when we slot slip back out, you know, they'll, they'll be right back on it. So there's a, uh, the other hunter, Keith, as actually, I wrote a piece, um, in it was in Peterson's bow hunting, I think maybe 2009, but they used a, Keith got a picture of a beautiful female leopard sitting by a water hole, um, that I, uh, got permission for him to use. And, um, Christian Berg used that photo as one of them for that piece that I wrote for, for Peterson's then. But, you know, you're just, you're just laying there, you know, one morning it was cause my sleep cycle gets so messed up, you know, it's just, just you know, seven, eight hour time good. difference. Yeah. So, and since then, I've learned that melatonin is my friend, so <laughs> I'm getting better about this this time change stuff. But I'm just laying there one morning, couldn't sleep, and I'd be five or six o'clock in the morning, still pitch black, and and he, I heard a leopard out in the bush. And leopards have um, it's not a lion roar, even though they're in the panthera family. Leopards and jaguars do this raspy cough. Hmm. And, um, you know, I'm on I'm I'm on some of these Facebook groups. I'm on this Southwest Florida animal sighting thing, and um, somebody on their uh, ring thing got a female panther chirping at her cubs, and you know, some expert comes on. Oh yeah, all the big cats can do that, even cheetahs and leopards. It's like okay, a cougar's not a true big cat, and neither is a cheetah, and leopards have a sound they make to their kids, but it's not chirping. So I just get. My wife's like, don't touch the keyboard, let it go. You know, <laughs> I, I would just, I would argue with people all day long about the idiotic things that, that you see on that. But yeah, you know, that's, that's the thing about when you go to these destinations that you, you, you see, feel, smell, hear how, how things really are. And, and when you're sitting in a blind literally all day, um, one evening, cause you've got your main shooting ports and then you've got some little side ports too. And they're right outside the, shooting port on the right side i was just i was just watching this little slender mongoose and all, all of a sudden the mongoose goes and a second later this huge foot stomps right there it was a black rhino that was walking on the blind and i so wanted a picture but wayne's like we do not move you know if you're going down a road and see a rhino in the bush that's one thing but at the blinds you do not move because that rhino if he's spooky and feels like it he will charge the blind because they had one blind that had a patch in it where the rhino charged the blind and hooked it so I just had to be satisfied. It's in my memory of watching that rhino because there was going to be no pictures because they're not going to spook him and, and have an accident. Yeah, that's incredible. That's just like see, a trip like that just has to be full of memories like that. That's why um, I've never really, I've always dreamt to go to Alaska to hunt, but not so much Africa. I don't know why, for whatever reason, but um, now this is getting me, it's getting me pumped. I'm going to start an Africa fund. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, you know, you've got your air travel. It is what it is. Yeah, I can the actual hunting other than, you know, I, I went down too many rabbit holes trying to get to the point, but you hunt a la carte. Mm -hmm. So animals can be expensive. And that, again, that's how they make their money. They're, they're animals, they're wild animals, but a kudu is this much, gemsbuck that much. And, you know, you get, you get there and your opinions can change. 
Mm-hmm. I had zero interest in shooting a zebra. I really didn't until you see how smart, how spooky. So if somebody gets a zebra with a bow, everything has gone right because they are as wired, as tight as any of the antelope species, mm. any of them. And thing I like about where I was is that, you know, everybody wants to shoot a zebra stallion because it's more macho. Well, again, the things that you learn being there, you take out that stallion and they, the, the social structure of zebras pretty much mirrors lions that a new stallion will come in and run off or kill foals. So the mares cycle for his genetics. So by taking out a mature stallion, you probably, you're going to kill some foals or get them run off to where they're not hurt and and be subject to predation. So, you know, the, and plus, you know, if you want a nice hide, an old mare that I tried to get has a much nicer hide than a stallion who's been fighting Fighting, and his whole life. So, you know, one morning, you know, Wayne said, you know, that's, that's a respectable old mare there. She's past breeding, but all it took was one swirl of wind in and out of the blind, just one random swirl and the water hole just exploded and we didn't see anything but dust. And there was Elon zebra, some other stuff. It was just once one animal detected our smell coming in out of the blind gone. So, I mean, that's just, you know, people think blind hunting so easy. I've been there. I've done it. No, it's not, you know, anything, anything can go wrong. And then, you know, you, you have these people that, oh, I would never go, you know, it's too easy to hunt a, a water hole in Africa, but they'll go sit a water hole for pronghorn or mule deer. So, you know, where's <laughs> the, points. you know, take a, you know, nice tall glass of hypocrisy there, Bubba. That's the way I look at that. <laughs> the thing to stress, I believe, is, uh, you know, some folks, there might be some guys who that don't want to go hunt there. Maybe they just want to take a tourist safari to see what's even like before they commit to, because it's going to be more expensive to hunt. But, uh, you know, there's just, again, it's, it's being there, uh, you know, just a quick example in, uh, 2012, when we did the tour, uh, the very last night, you know, we motor around, you know, Tanzania for 10 days and the very last night in the Serengeti, um, Everybody on the tour was tired. They've been bouncing around in Jeeps for, you know, eight, 10 days, and they just want a night to do nothing. So there were just four of us that went out for the final drive. We had not seen anything close up on a kill. So very last night, we found a small pride of lions on a fresh killed zebra. And it was, you know, that was the only time. And, you know, we were close and they were squabbling and, you know, it's just, a fantastic experience but you know when we got back we got back late because we were watching them until dark and we walked in the dining area and i held up the screen on my camera i said see what y'all missed you know and i had told them all you know because a, a lot of it was their first time i said do not miss anything yeah you might only come here once mm-hmm. do not miss anything take every single opportunity and most of them chose not to. Just four out of 22 people got to see lions eating a zebra. Um, but then again, it's, you know, there's things that, you know, I think I know a lot about animals. I get to Africa and I feel like I know nothing. Um, you know, we were, uh, we were driving out um, one afternoon to go to a village on a, on a, on a lake. And we actually got a, um, a canoe ride out on a big lake. And um, on the way out, I saw because in certain parts of Serengeti, you can't drive off road, but way off on the edge of this brush line, I saw vultures and I saw a zebra carcass. And I asked the driver, I said, 
there's I could, you know, my, my binoculars, I could see there's nothing on it. And he said, yeah, that the ones that killed that zebra, they're not a resident pride. They're a nomadic pride. So they're hit and run killers. So they move through somebody else's territory. They'll kill something, quick gorge and get the hell out of Dodge because they don't want the resident pride to kick their butt. I'm so, sorry. yeah. Um, I've never heard of that before. That's yeah, so there's just the stuff, the stuff that you learn, you know, and also it's, you know, I teach these people and as we as hunters know that, you know, because they're like, how'd you spot that? Or how'd you spot that? It's just like, I've, you know, trained myself. I'm a, you know, an outdoor guy I said, you know, most things in the woods grow vertically, look for things that are horizontal. So a few minutes after that, you know, um, I've got the roof pop back and I'm standing on my socks on the seat. I'm like a dog in the breeze. You know, I'm not going to miss nothing, you know, until I have to sit down and, and I look and I see several tan lines laying out in the grass. It was lying, sleeping off something. And, uh, I slammed on the roof. I told the driver, there's lions out there. He goes, good find, you know, because he didn't even see them. So it's, it's just a matter of, of paying attention and looking. But um, that's the other interesting thing, another, another, rab, another sidebar here. In East Africa, you're in fully enclosed vehicles. So you have to, uh, if you want to observe or photograph animals, you flip the roof back, take off your shoes, stand on the seat. South Africa is a much more intimate experience. There you're in open Jeeps. So you've got your driver, your tracker, and then three tiers of seats. So really just a total of eight people. So in South Africa, you're wide open to everything. So in South Africa, they are armed. Um, you know, our, our, our guy had a 458 on the windscreen because you're just, but that's the way they like to do it there. And, and then- What I, would be the most likely animal to cause a problem? you know down there um any of the big cats mm -hmm. i've got a picture of um our guide maxwell because um they sit on uh they've got a chair well to the front like the movie hatari john wayne yeah. mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies if you ever want to watch the most four minutes of intensity just it, you can find it on youtube the first four minutes of hatari um is a rhino chase with a black rhino and the way they bounced it, and that was done inside in Gorogoro Crater. And they had to do so much editing because John Wayne was constantly cursing the whole time because of the way those trucks were getting airborne. So yeah, look up Atari, Rhino Hunt, first four, three minutes, it's just, it's just wild. But um, so in East Africa, they can, they can sit on the front. But I've got a picture of, you can see Maxwell's knee in the shot. And then right in front of him is an adult female hyena got blood all over her face. So she just finished a kill somewhere. So there was that, she's just walking by. But the thing about that is, is you don't move. You want to look like you're one part of this one solid object. Mm -hmm. um, because um, our first drive in Sabi Sabi, which is a concession inside Kruger National Park, which everybody's heard of, um, there had been a fight between, usually the brothers of a pride are, they're, they're tight, they control everything. But these two brothers got in some kind of squabble and uh, uh, nine ten month old cub got in the middle and got killed so we pull up and there's one of the brothers just snoozing away and there's a dead cub lane you know 20 feet away from him that had been killed the previous day but here we are there's the male lion nothing between us but air but he's just he's just looking over and we look like one solid thing so that's why you don't you don't move too much you never get out of the vehicle and do they you, tell you that ahead of time yeah yeah because there's their job to keep you safe so 
in, in South Africa because they had some much more intimate experience and closer to the animals and basically, you know, an unrestricted environment that um, every, I believe it's every six months, they have to do a firearm test. And that's not how well, you know, pH has to know that they can follow up and finish off something at 100 yards if the client can't get it. These guides there in the concessions um, where they do the tourist trips, they have to be able to shoot some attempt to 15 yards that's mechanically coming at them. So that's that's their test. So that's why they've got they've got a loaded rifle hanging there on the windscreen. But you know, the only time that we were a little sketchy is we had a leopard bounce us. A big male leopard bounced the Jeep one morning. What, is, what do you mean by that? Bounce it. Well, I'll tell as quick as I can because we're, we're talking about so much. Um, it was our last morning in Sabi Sabi, and we had come off this kind of flat belt plain and dipped down into this like ravine and there were two or three kudu cows in front of us and they barked and hauled butt and Rika said that's their bark for leopards they know this antelope's language so she said there could be a leopard here we're going to try and find it so there was a big thick brushy area about 50 yard oval and we took one full trip around and then on the half trip and Maxwell sitting on the front and then he points and Rika pushes in through the brush because Maxwell must have seen that track on the second go around and right off the bumper is a big male leopard just laying in the grass and all you can see is his muzzle in his eyes and he's just watching us and we're looking at him and I've got one picture of that and then he went huh, and he bounced the truck and all Ricka did was she slammed it's wonder she didn't break her fist or her hand she slammed the side of the door and went hey and that was enough to like stop the cat for a second like what am I doing and um, and then my next pictures of him, he's just kind of, you know, sulking away. I've got pictures of his butt and tail disappearing into the grass. But he they said he was a new cat because they know, you know, in their acreage, they know where all the leopards are in their territories. That's their job to know. And they said he was a new animal in the territory trying to find his place. So he was just, a you know, just a little bit, a little bit edgy. Mm -hmm. But there are some places where like in Tarangari in Tanzania, where they the, the the tents we the first camp and the second camp were in elevated platforms where your tent was you know 10 12 feet above the ground just a simple wooden stair and um and Taryn Gary they actually escort you from dinner because usually dark by then escort you and uh one of our escorts was a Tanzanian bushman and not a rifle he had his bow and arrows that was his comfort you know, oh. that was what he thought he would be most effective with was his bow. He didn't carry a rifle. Some of the other guys, when they walk you back and forth at night, they would carry a rifle. But um, yeah, we got pictures. We got super cool. He shot like almost the Asiatic thumb style. Uh huh. It was a stout bow. I mean, I could barely pull it back with three fingers and he's pulling it back. And we they have these like little wooden targets. And so we we shot his uh, me and this other guy on the tour, Greg. We shot his bow and um, then through spears and just we just wild away. The, I don't know how many other targets we broke. Just but again, this is stuff that that you do. Just you're you're having fun while you're there. So there's just so many things that you don't read about that happen when you're there. You know, people want to write about all the you know. I saw the big five or whatever. You know, it's these little things that happen that you. I remember that stuff in their interactions with people before I remember the animal encounters. Is that, that, that goes for the hunting too. You know, that goes oh, yeah. for the hunting too. You know, it's the same thing. That that should all go in a book. Are you writing one? Um, no, I don't have time. I don't mm -hmm. have time. I mean, there's a book, there's 
there's two books on my family. One my mom wrote called Jaguar in a Kitchen that came out a couple of years ago. And then there's one that came out, um, a woman, Sharon Rendell, wrote it about me in 94 called Living with Big Cats. But that's not, you know, that's about my past life, not this one. Gotcha. And I, I, I think on Amazon, there's still a few copies of Living Big Cats, but I think I think we sold out the original 5,000 we had printed or whatever. When did that come out? 90, 94. 94. There's right. a picture of me. There's a picture of me nuzzling one of my tigers, and it was just a somehow the publisher, they were supposed to edit the picture of just me and the tiger's face. And we get the book, and it's, you know, it's got like my diaphragm up and what am i wearing a ted nugent zebra shirt <laughs> that was not that was not supposed to be in the picture but it was just it was too they they just they messed it up so that was the cover it wasn't the way it was supposed to because it wasn't it wasn't supposed to it was supposed to be a headshot so i didn't care what i was wearing very cool that's that's funny though mm -hmm. <laughs> well david this has been a blast thank you so much for coming on Oh, thanks for having me. I've really had a good time, Jim. I'd love to have you back sometime because I, I have a feeling you have some more stories about <laughs> big cats, Africa, Alaska, and uh, many other, other travels that you've had, you've done. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll uh, have some hunting stories after the season because I'm really yeah. looking forward to getting, I mean, Alaska was great, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting in the whitetail woods really yeah. and maybe hooking up with a, I killed a couple of hogs last year up at St. Mark's, which you know, you're aware of, that's in our panhandle, yeah. but um yeah, I need to need to get on some more hogs and stuff too. But I just I'm really looking forward to getting out in the woods. Very cool. And if you're ever ever up this way in the fall, let me know. We'll get after some deer. There's a lot of public land up here. Love to. Love to. Thank you. Yep. David Tesla, thanks so much for joining me. Good deal. Appreciate you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks.